Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. It is officially springtime in the Northern Hemisphere and bears all across the region are waking up from hibernation. Depending on your view of bears, this news either excites you, concerns you, or it means nothing to you. Me, I'm personally excited as all get out. I love watching my social media blow up with the first bear sightings of the year. However, I'm also aware that waking bears means another season of conflict. Their high intelligence, incredible sense of smell, almost insatiable hunger, and dwindling habitat lead them to places that they just shouldn't go. As bear populations recover and human settlements grow, we have to figure out ways to keep bears and humans safe. So how do we coexist with bears? What does science say causes bears to leave their habitat and venture into ours? Are there ways to reduce conflict? To teach us about North American black bears and grizzly bears, today we are sitting down with Stuart Breck, PhD, research wildlife biologist at the USDA Wildlife Services and a facility affiliate in the Center for Human Carnivore Coexistence at Colorado State University. Stuart studied all kinds of wildlife throughout grad school and felt a certain pull to bears after writing a research proposal to study bears in Rocky Mountain National Park. He didn't land the role, but never forgot about the fascinating species. Then, in the early 2000s, fate and opportunity met, and he was hired by the USDA to reduce human-bear conflict and has been studying coexistence ever since. Stuart and I have a fantastic time discussing how he became involved in human-bear conflict research, misconceptions about the USDA and why he loves working for the agency, Black Bear Biology 101 and Grizzly Bear Biology 101, the long-term black bear study he conducted in Western Colorado, the work he is now doing with grizzly bears in Montana, and what science says we can do to reduce conflict with bears. Really quickly, before diving into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that I am planning a listener meetup. I'm working on the next big phase of the show, and I want to hear from you. The meetup will consist of about an hour of me picking your brain, hearing what you love about the show, what can be improved about the show, ideas for future episodes, listening to your stories, of course, because I love that, and enjoying a tasty beverage together. Don't worry, joining this meetup won't cost you anything, just an hour of your time. The meetup will happen via Google Meets at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on May 16th. If you'd like to join, please let me know by emailing me at hello at or sending me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at Rewildology. I can't wait to finally meet all of you. I've been looking forward to this day so much. <laughs> All right, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Stuart. Well, hi, Stuart. Thank you so much for coming on Rewildology today and sitting down with me and the entire community. And 
I personally love and have a big, strong interest in this group of animals that happens to be what you've dedicated your whole life to. So bears, bears across North America and where we, you know, in Colorado and everything like that. But before we dive into all this crazy, awesome stuff that you've done, these long-term projects and everything that you know, why bears? What is your journey that led you to what you're doing today? Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I've always considered myself a person that would study anything. And I've, I've studied a lot of different critters and loved working with a variety of animals, you know, from dung beetles all the way up to black rhinos and, and bears. And, but there was a point when I was finishing my dissertation back in 1999, 2000, that there came an opportunity to write a proposal for studying bears in Rocky Mountain National Park. And as I was researching that proposal and writing it, for some reason, it just seemed like a fascinating critter to study, to be involved with. Up until that point, I had no real experience with bears. And I didn't get that proposal, but the research I did was kind of stuck with me and then ended up with in this job. My first assignment was to really focus on wolves and developing non-lethal techniques for minimizing conflict with wolves, which was great. And I enjoyed it, but there became an opportunity to work with bears in kind of a similar fashion. And that was in Yosemite National Park about 2002. They were interested in some of the work I was doing with wolves and developing tools and invited me to the park. And I jumped on that. And it was uh, sort of the entry into studying bears. And I don't regret it a single second. So it's been uh, quite a journey. Uh, Enjoyed every bit of it. Bears are fascinating critters. And I just love working with them. Yeah, as we're as we're going to dive into so deeply, which I'm so excited to talk to you about because I really haven't had a chance to to pick the brain of somebody who knows this particular large carnivore in North America. So, it's like a it's a whole of whole of knowledge that I'm really excited to gain from you. So, maybe let's bring you up to what you're doing today. So then, what is your current role and what do you do? What do you work on? So I work for the USDA in an agency called Wildlife Services, and I'm a researcher in that, in that branch. And my role is to focus on human carnivore interactions and developing techniques to minimize conflict. And that's kind of the primary mission. Within that mission, there's a lot of opportunity to do different types of work, and it ranges from inventing and developing new tools to doing ecological work on carnivores to teaming up with social scientists to understand the human component of it. So I kind of do all that in tandem. And often I think I'm most successful when I'm working in a system and it's not exclusive to bears, but includes often coyotes or, or wolves, uh, just any kind of predation carnivore 
related issue. So that's my job. I have spent a, a fair bit of time working with with bears, especially in the urban realm of things, and and with black bears. Um, I do have a little bit of work going on with polar bears, and that's mostly through a colleague, and it's mostly looking at databases. But I had the opportunity to travel up to Alaska and and see polar bears, which was a ma magnificent yes. experience, but it was also <laughs> sort of a depressing experience because mm. all the observations were on land and you're just seeing sort of the future to, you know, materialize in front of your eyes with polar bears spending a bunch of time on land. But um, that and um, doing some work indirectly now with uh, grizzly bears, mostly in terms of uh, understanding different kinds of tools for minimizing conflict and exploring possibilities of doing a more in-depth study of bear, grizzly bear population in a particular area of Montana that has a lot of uh, cattle and livestock. Um, so it's always melding all these kind of different aspects into the bear world. So I don't really consider myself a bear biologist necessarily. I, um, I'm often spending more time thinking about people and conflict as well as a bear. Yeah. Cause those two things go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. <laughs> the bear is awesome at being a bear. It's us that seems to have a problem with everything else. <laughs> They're just so smart and creative and uh, at times, pain in the butt. So, <laughs> yeah. especially an animal their size. It's, I mean, yeah, coyotes can be annoying and maybe take, you know, a, a pet or something like that. But when we're talking about a grizzly bear, it's just the, the consequences of conflict can be significantly bigger. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, grizzly bears, they bring a new uh, dimension to the to the conflict arena just because of, like you said, their size and their abilities. It's a little different than working with black bears, which is where most of my experience is. Yeah, yeah. And so before we get to all of the bear stuff, I, I want to take a, take a moment to ask this, this question because you're the first person that I've had the privilege of sitting down with that works for a federal agency, the USDA. And just from your experience, I've heard people from both sides of the spectrum that they talk, they're like, I hate the USDA, this is why. And then people are just like, I have no problem with it or blah, blah, blah. What have you experienced? Like when you tell people you work for the USDA, have you had some people that are like, why could you work for that agency and other and maybe some other feedback on the other side? And yeah, maybe just like, could you tell us what it's like working for the agency and maybe why there's a skewed view of what it does, the USDA. I, yeah, maybe just talk, tell me a little bit more about that. I, I really want to hear your personal opinion for from sure. what you've done for years. Yeah, I'm happy to to discuss this. It's you're right. It it is a controversial agency. Some people love us. That's usually sort of the the ranching rural kind of community. Some people hate us, and that's usually the kind of the environmental uh, side of the equation. The reality is there's quite a few groups that surprisingly work with 
me and my agency. And that work is often sort of behind the scenes. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of folks like Defenders of Wildlife or some other other groups that recognize there's a real um, important component of what we do and in, in that, you know, we do focus on rural livelihoods a lot. And that's part of our mission is to ensure the sustainability of ranchers on the, the landscape. Um, and predation can be an important component that makes that challenging. So that's built into our mission. I think some of the dislike of my agency stems from our history. You know, it's, it's a direct link to just the eradication of large carnivores across the landscape a hundred years ago. And, you know, the methods used there were poison and guns and traps and uh, all the above. And, you know, that obviously that agency is not what we are today, but that history certainly carries forward. And sometimes we do work that is, it's not pretty. You know, sometimes we have to go out and do lethal control. It's not something anybody in the agency necessarily likes to do, uh, but sometimes it's necessary. So all that combined, you, you end up in a, a fairly controversial agency. That said, when I was hired, they hired me specifically to develop non-lethal tools for carnivore management. And they've embraced the work I've done. It's, um, it's been a real interesting journey. It's not something that I would have really understood uh, about the agency, but they have, there's some great people in here that are very creative. They want to solve these problems and they don't necessarily want to kill things to do, to solve the problems. In fact, it's preferable not to. So there's that philosophy, that attitude in, within embedded in the agency. It's growing. It's uh, uh, becoming more professional every day. I've watched the agency really blossom in ways I wouldn't have expected 20 years ago when I started. So it's been a certainly a, a very cool agency to work for, in my opinion. A lot of people are surprised at that. And it's just something that it's hard to explain. And you kind of have to, you have to really understand what we do to appreciate what I'm saying. Yeah, and that's that's why I wanted to bring it up because it's so rare that any of us really in this field have a chance to talk with somebody who's who's in it. We just see whatever propaganda that some organization is putting out there. And it could be true or it could not be true or it could be skewed in one way or another. And here we're talking to somebody who is and there might be somebody listening right now like how could you talk to somebody that works at that agency? It's like, well, I'm going to show you why. Like, look at these incredible things that they are doing. And on the verse, reverse side of that, too, I, I come from a very rural place. And I understand from my own experience that there can be really serious consequences with living with these large carnivores. Like, I'm always on the biologist side. I want carnivores. But I also understand from people that I personally know and grew up with 
living with carnivores is not easy and they care a lot about their cows and their farms. So how, how do we come to a middle ground? And so that is why that was my big why about wanting to talk to you, because this is this conversation. Not only are you a researcher, but you have direct influence on what essentially the government does with our wildlife. And that's awesome. That's so cool. So this is such an honor to talk to you about this kind of stuff. Yeah, one a couple things and one correction. Our agency has no authority over wildlife. Mm. And that's, you know, that's really primarily up to the states and sometimes other aspects of the federal government. We're called in to solve problems. Then that those problems are, you know, the human carnivore mix. And so there's a lot of uh, regulation of what we do in, in terms of the state or the federal agency will say, okay, yeah, you can take this many uh, carnivores or animals and lethally remove them. And, and that, but that's all driven by regulations within uh, other areas of, of either state or federal government primarily. So, you know, I think that's important to keep in mind, but also, it's important that you know, written within our mission statement is to figure out better ways to coexist. And that word coexist is an important word that often is thrown around loosely and it's important to define it. And, and the way I define it is, is kind of four pillars. One is sustainable human livelihoods, thriving human livelihoods, sustainable carnivore populations, minimizing conflict with between the humans and wildlife. And then I think another important pillar is minimizing conflict between different groups of people. And so you define coexistence that way and it becomes, it becomes a real, not easy, it becomes a nice goal to go after. The, the work that goes into creating those environments is difficult. It involves a lot of different elements that I'm sure we'll talk about. <laughs> Yeah, that's the perfect segue. So yeah, now that we have, go. yeah, that, that's, that's exactly where we're going next. Since I, yeah, now that we have that exactly what your role is and what you all do, and I love that definition, like on, like you just were speaking to like my personal mission, being a carnivore advocate, I guess you can say, I don't know what you call me, but that's exactly how I feel, you know, growing up where I did understanding that we need predators on the land and how can we make as many people and species happy as possible, <laughs> essentially. And so that is where you are stepping in. So first, let's start with black bears. I would love if you could maybe take a chance first. Let's maybe do a little black bear 101 because not everybody that this show is actually quite global. And so maybe not everyone knows what a black bear is. But maybe could you start with maybe teaching us about some facts about black bears, maybe how they're different than grizzlies. And then we can start diving into a lot to what you actually studied and what your work showed. But yeah, teach us about black bears. Okay, black bear 101. Well, black bears are one of eight different species of bears across the world. They are exclusive to North America. We have a small population in Mexico, a much larger population in the United States, up through Canada into Alaska. Um, so they're one of the more successful 
air species in the sense that they are not a threatened species. There are bears throughout, at least in the United States and Canada, that very healthy, robust populations of black bears. And that stems from a lot of state agencies doing great jobs recovering bear populations when they were after they'd been suppressed for so long, at least in the United States. So um, black bears are a very much a generalist species, meaning they'll eat a lot of different types of food from plants to insects to sometimes they prey on different species, but also they will readily take advantage of foods made available by people. And uh, and so that's where my my world sort of enters into the black bear world, which is that interface. But in terms of biology of black bears, they hibernate during the winter. And so there's a, a period from, you know, roughly October through April when uh, most bears are are asleep and dormant. And that um, that's an important aspect of all the work I do. They breed in basically late spring, early summer, but they delay the development of their cubs t- until the fall, until they go into hibernation. And so they give birth to very small cubs inside their, their dens. And, and then the cubs generally spend another year and a half or so with, with mom until the next, they hibernate again with their mother the next year. And then, and then the cubs disperse after that second hibernation. So that's just a little bit of information about bears. Uh, We can go into more depth or not, depending on what you want to do. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. I think most people know what at least bears are. And from those of us that live in North America, and even if you don't, maybe you've heard about them, these bears can get quite into trouble <laughs> because they are such generalists. And if you go to anywhere in like the Smokies or national parks, there's all these bear signs and bear smart trash cans and, and all of these different methods to try to both save bears and get them away from people because they are really good at becoming problem bears or things like that. So... What did you learn? Maybe maybe set this up. How did your Black Bear project come to be? And what did you and your team do and learn when you started to try to work on this human Black Bear conflict problem? Well, that, that journey started in Yosemite National Park, where when they called me to help, they were sort of at the height of massive bear conflicts massive being just the occurring daily. And a lot of that was bears breaking into cars and the park had really did a magnificent job of reducing that dramatically, uh, reducing the break-ins to, uh, to campers, foods and things like that. And, it, and there's a lot that goes into that story, but, and I had a very small role in that, but the experience led me to, look at my home state of Colorado and realize that all the problems that this national park were experiencing were starting to manifest in areas that are not national parks, but are 
that are the urban and and suburban towns and rural areas throughout Colorado where bears bears exist and it was about 2002 or 3 where i made a call to a biologist in the state that was also seeing this problem coming and so we combined forces so it was my agency and then Colorado Parks and Wildlife and we started a urban black bear study in the town of Aspen which was is and was kind of a focal area for black bear conflict and in these kind of urban if you will or town like settings and so we embarked on a 6 year project that was really focused on understanding black bear behavior associated with this problem of urban development and the garbage that was available in these urban environments and how bears were utilizing that. And then that study morphed into uh, a study in Durango, another six year study that was really sort of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. One of the researchers, Heather Johnson, who is just a remarkable person and remarkable researcher. She took over. I was behind the scenes supporting that work. And, um, and that project focused on not only better understanding of bear behavior, but also looking at what is the influence of these towns and pop on the bear population, which is a really interesting question. It's a hard question to get at, but that was the focus. How are, how are we influencing the bear population as well as some pretty big experiments on what do we do? What happens if we put out garbage cans that are really bear resistant? How do, how does that work in terms of minimizing conflict, which was, you know, that's really the ultimate goal is how do we minimize conflict? So we're combining all that together in these different, in two different long-term studies that work sort of dribbled along after 2016, the heart of the Durango study was done. We did a little bit of follow-up work and then we are now working, I have a graduate student who's working more at some kind of policy level and uh, questions related to how well does uh, this sort of an experiment that's occurring in Colorado where the governor's office made available a million dollars to different towns and cities in Colorado that were experiencing bear problems. And that money is, is supposed to go towards cleaning up these towns, evaluating like how does, you know, the making this kind of resource available, how, how do towns respond? And then are we being effective at minimizing conflict? So I have a student that's focused on that right now. Nice. And so let's go back to the, maybe some of the answers that came out of these long-term projects. So what was the main driver for conflict? And then maybe were there clear solutions that came out of that that have been tried and true? Or is that still, is that work still ongoing? I, I guess, what are, what are the solutions to what you guys discovered? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's no one solution, but there's some clear things that 
you know, from our work that showed, all right, this is the direction we need to go. But backing up a little bit, some of the drivers, you know, there's two real key drivers. One, of course, is, is the availability of what we call anthropogenic resources. And that's just sort of a, a sophisticated way, if you will, of saying there's a lot of garbage out on the landscape. And that garbage availability is one of the primary drivers of bears coming into, into these towns. And so we kind of knew that. It's sort of intuitive, right? But we really wanted to understand just the extent that that food source was important. And so as we were looking at that over, over the course of 12 years of studying this, we've had a couple, we had a couple years where the natural food supply for bears was really limited. And that's usually driven by a, some kind of climatic event or a weather mm-hmm. event where you have a late spring freeze that really kills off the, the berries and the acorns and these natural foods that are available to bears. So you, you put those two things together, the availability of all this kind of garbage and human-oriented food in these town-like situations, and you, you, you layer over that a natural food failure. That's when you really see the problems erupt. And, and those problems can be statewide or they can be real local. And so you might see a town that is humming along with very low conflict, but then you have a food failure that is sort of a local phenomenon and they can have really bad problems. And, and so, um, but ultimately what's driving that is, is there's this alternative food source that bears are pretty aware of, very savvy. They understand what coming into urban environments, I don't, most bears don't want to do that. Our data showed very clearly that bears that would come in and forage in urban environments one year, if there was food available the next year, a lot of bears wouldn't come back. So That's really would, good to know. Yeah, it is it, really important. That's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes you get individuals that they're just like, yeah, I'm coming to town. I'm going to stay in town. <laughs> um, unfortunately, those bears end up usually being removed at some point and yeah, euthanized. Yeah. So those are, you know, those are probably two of the key drivers there that that's very clear. One of the things that was real important was, well, what is the impact of these, that dynamic of food availability and natural food failures? How does that impact bear populations? That was a really important outcome of the Durango study in that, one of the things we demonstrated was mortality goes way up during those bad food years. So the mortality, uh, one of the highest, one of the most important mortalities was bears getting run over. So, yeah. And just coming into town is, is riskier for bears. The number of bears that get euthanized increases. Some of the hunter harvest might increase a little bit, but one of the biggies is just that, it's it's a little bit more dangerous place, you know, all the roads for bears. And so the mortality increased. It was in Durango, one of the surprising findings was that the local bear population decreased remarkably during a bad food year. 
Wow. Yeah. So over 50%, which is a big, that's a big drop in the bear population. Yeah. That's massive. Yeah. So it was, it, for me, it highlighted that there's a lot more to this story than just conflict. It's impacts the bear populations, but it's also impacts to the, to the biologists working on this problem. They end up spending an inordinate amount of time trying to solve these problems. It can be highly emotional. No one likes euthanizing bears, but that becomes part more commonly part of the equation. The, there's impacts to the people in the uh, urban environment. You know, anyway, so there, there's a lot of dynamics that would argue if we can reduce this from happening by preventing the desire for bears to come into these urban areas, that's a much preferable solution. And the way to do that is just to reduce garbage, or at least that's a really important, significant first step. So that's where a lot of the focus is now, is how do we reduce this availability of, of food that's really inappropriate for bears? And what have you found is the, or are the best ways to do that? Is that on an individual level? Is that a city level? Is that county level? What, how do you, I mean, I'm sure it's a, probably a mix of all of those, but how exactly do we keep bears or foraging bears out of trash? Do they just give up? They're like, well, crap, I can't get that trash can. I can't get to that trash can. I guess I'm done. How do we actually manage the trash problem? And then what do bears do in response to that? Yeah, the managing the the trash problem is a is a really important question. And I don't want to minimize the role of individuals because I think individual behavior is a really important component and having people that are conscious about their their garbage and making it available is really it's really critical, but you also need a critical mass of individuals operating in a together before it becomes effective. Meaning, you know, if only half of the people are using bear resistant garbage containers, it's not going to be enough to have any kind of impact on what bears do. And so it, it quickly scales up to generally a municipal level problem. And that's where things get kind of tricky because each municipality is going to uh, operate differently. Um, and some of the some of the things that influence whether towns or cities embrace this this notion of reducing garbage, you know, well, I mean, first and foremost is going to be can they afford to do that kind of work? But it's also important to think about who manages the garbage. So in Durango, the city would manage their the garbage collection and. And so they had more ability to influence at the appropriate scale this notion of cleaning up and, and re really reducing the residential garbage made available versus a town like Aspen, where a lot of that garbage collection is, is all private companies. And so mm. you can understand if you're asking the garbage companies to retool, to build into their programs using bear-resistant garbage containers and distributing residents, they're 
there's going to be a cost to that. And who bears the burden of that cost? And so you, you often see the, these garbage collection companies resistant to that change. And, and so that becomes um, a hurdle, if you will. How do you figure out that dynamic? And then, you know, within, within that framework, it's also pretty clear that you probably need some type of enforcement. Some people are going to be good actors by nature, but there's other people that either aren't interested or, or forget that this is important. And so having reminders, having some law enforcement is probably part of the equation at some level to make sure you have adequate compliance. And, and so all those things, you know, start mixing together. And that's where I'm like, okay, social scientists, how do we do this? Because I'm a bear biologist <laughs> and, uh, and I don't have all those answers, but it does require a team effort and it requires, it requires people from all different kinds of backgrounds to really, I think, be effective with this. And I'm talking about city managers to, you know, the garbage collectors to biologists to caring citizens to obviously the, the wildlife managers. And so I think people are more and more recognizing the dynamics of this kind of problem and understanding how, how do we build a team into this to, to approach these problems. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that you brought up the differences between something like a garbage system that is run by a city where they have their own resources, they collect taxes, like people pay for the system. And so they just have more resources to make the change happen. Like I come from a family of small businesses. And so I can only imagine the cost of a business that are, they're wanting to change their operations. They're like, yeah, maybe we do care. We would love that, but we don't have the funds or we're going to have to pass it on to our customers. And what kind of pushback are they going to have for their customers? Are they going to lose business? Like these are all real serious questions. Even if somebody wants to do the right thing, maybe the, the costs outweigh the possible benefits of saving a few bears lives. And so I really, I'm really appreciate that you brought that up because that, just like you said, that is where social sciences come into play. And with that, I've had a couple social scientists on, but I haven't had as many as I would have liked with your experience. Did you learn anything from any social scientists? Like, did they come up with some solutions that you could maybe share with us of examples that might have worked or what maybe psychology has shown worked in maybe particular cases or, um, yeah. Do you have anything like that, that you could share? Sure. I can, I can share a little, let's say mistake I made as a early, early in this, in this, um, effort. And this occurred in Aspen where the graduate student working on that project, it, we're brainstorming like, okay, what is part of your, what is part of your dissertation? And I was really keen on understanding what is the role of education for getting people to do things differently. And so we set up a series of these little experiments where like we go plaster signs and, and, you know, other information on garbage cans and around neighborhoods and things to say, you know, be bear aware. And this is really important. And we documented or we demonstrated that we, there was no real behavior change 
in the way people manage their garbage. And then so we did this other experiment where we were, you know, trying to get uh, business owners to to manage their garbage differently. And we wouldn't see any kind of real response unless there was some type of law enforcement. Anyway, it led me to make this conclusion falsely that education wasn't important. And, and so I remember presenting these results at, at a conference and it was full of these wonderful people doing community education. And I stood up there and said, education's not important. And, <laughs> and uh, oops. Uh, yeah, oops. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was a little brash and a little bit naive. And but what I realized from that experience was that no, education is very important, but it has to be merged with other efforts that are that that go beyond just trying to educate where maybe it is that we're convincing that law enforcement's important at some level, or maybe we're incentivizing in different ways. And it's, it's all that combined is where I see success. And I, so I'm not a social scientist and I don't have the answer to the question you pose, which is what are the solutions beyond just sort of this experience that it seems like there's a critical mass that includes education, law enforcement, grassroots efforts, community level efforts that are all critical to having a, enough impact at a municipal level where you, you know, you're making a, a significant change. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'm sure most people listening that they've traveled like the Yellowstone or anywhere that has bears, like, you know, like a fed bear is a dead bear. Like, you know, that that's plastered everywhere and that's pretty straightforward and obvious. And, but again, sometimes unless you, us as individuals have the whole, like, what exactly does that mean? A fed bear is a dead bear. I'm not taking a peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and giving it to Smokey the bear, you know, like I'm not doing that. So like, what does that properly mean? So I completely agree that education on a different level is totally needed. Yeah. And you know, that, that notion of a fed bear is a dead bear is, is one that we, we showed is not a, a very accurate statement. And we showed that bears would come into these urban environments in one year because they were really hungry and it was a good source of food. They probably were understanding there's a lot of risk there. And then some, most of the bears in the next year, if it was a good food year, would not return to town. So the notion that any bear that gets human food is going to understand and change its way of life to just take advantage of human food is not is not a, a, a truism in any sense of the word. Sometimes that happens, but a lot of times it doesn't. So these messages become like I get the I get the point that it's easy to say a fed bear is a dead bear, and that kind of gets this point across. Hey, you know, don't feed them, and that's a really important message. But it, it's not one. It's not necessarily true, but also it makes it. It's not as simple as that. So we have to be, we have to come up with strategies that are, that are beyond those simple messages that knowing that this is hard work, it's going to take a while to affect behavior change, 
at a level where it needs to be. It's going to require resources, probably requires some kind of policy decisions, maybe at a municipal level, maybe at a state level. So all that combined is where we're going to make progress. And it, it's just not a simple solution. As is nothing with carnivores. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> And so this just listening to you talk now for a while, I think my biologist side is tingling a little bit. Uh, the big question mark for me now is, so let's say that maybe there is a late May, May freeze that we know is going to be a massive issue for a, a lot of wildlife that is reliant on that uh, food source. Is there a way to be proactive after that? Like, oh my gosh, this massive spring freeze came through. We had a May blizzard. All the berries are gone. Our bears are more than likely going to have a hard time this year. Is there a way to be proactive about maybe trash that year? Like we're probably going to see higher uh, things of conflict. I mean, I'm never usually a supporter of supplement, like be, giving supplemental food to wildlife. But if it's natural, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just like, literally word vomiting on you right now. But is that something that we've looked into that have had solutions or is that too big of a, that's too big of a question? <laughs> no, I don't think it's too big of a question. I think it's an important question. And I get that question a fair bit. And there's, there's been some efforts to try to be able to predict that better. Um, when are the bad food years going to occur? Because it does, it, it does help in the sense of, all right, let's gear up for a bad summer, bad fall. What that typically means is, is probably most of that responsibility is going to fall on the biologists and mm -hmm. managing, managing bears breaking into a lot of things. It's not going to, well, I was going to say it's not going to solve the sort of the underlying problem, but it, it might bring more attention to the underlying problem of, hey, there's a lot of garbage availability out here. And so this is why we need to clean it up. And I think spreading that message during those really bad food years is important. It's an important, you know, people operate often on crisis in crisis mode. That's where you tend to see more change sometimes. And so I don't want to say take advantage of the, you know, you know, a lot of bears coming into town, but don't be afraid to spread the word. Like the reason we're having this problem is because there's a bunch of food available and bears are figuring that out. And the way to prevent this is in the future anyway, is to, is to do better at cleaning up. So I think being able to pre predict those real bad food years is important. It's also, uh, it's important in the sense of having biologists be ready for, for handling that, but also making sure people understand why this is happening. Awesome. And then let's let's take this up a little bigger picture here. So I was raised in the Appalachians, and then I've lived in the Rockies for almost a decade. Are the issues the same pretty much across the board, or is it just like a black bear is a black bear and it's intelligent and it's getting to all the bad things in all the places, or does it vary population to population and what the issues are and solutions are? 
Well, I think the answer is, is yes, it's the same and no, it's not the same. It just depends on the scale you're looking at. I mean, the, you could argue that issues with bears killing livestock is similar to the issue of urban garbage availability in the sense that we're putting something out on the landscape that provides food for bears and they will take advantage of a lot of different kinds of food, food sources. So in that sense, yeah, the issues are all the same from whether it's a national park or whether you're out east or we're dealing with stuff in Colorado or we're dealing with agriculture or urban the, the issue is, is underlying a lot of this, or most of it, is, yeah, there's, there's a food source available that becomes problematic if bears get into it. That said, it's then you can't approach the problem all from the same. You, you can't approach it as if you solve one thing, you're going to solve all the bear problems. There's going to be differences that that are important, say, from Eastern U.S. to Western U.S. related to just bears in urban environments. There, there's certainly differences in the food, natural foods across the Eastern U.S. that the more productive system, and usually you don't, you, you can still have those massive food failures, but oftentimes there's other foods that are available that maybe don't make it so dramatic. Mm. And, um, and then there's, I think importantly, there's probably human culture that is different between regions and how people approach it and, and what people think and believe and the attitudes and the values and all that that factor into that equation very quickly. Oh, I agree with that. Like I said, being raised in rural Appalachia <laughs> versus them living in Denver, Colorado for seven years. You want to talk about a freaking difference in culture. It's massive. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to be exposed like in, in the trenches of two very different cultures from the same country. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's quite amazing. And it's very humbling because when you work with people from such different parts of the world, when you care about, I care about carnivores and I know personally in my own life, people that couldn't view them more differently. It's, it's very, it keeps you. Yeah. It keeps you strongly in the middle where you're like, I understand your point And I understand your point. Neither one of you are wrong, but we got to come up with a solution here. So, you know, well, in terms of training natural resource professionals, you know, when I went through college, none of this was really, it might've been appreciated at, at some level, but it was, there wasn't any kind of training or there wasn't the, the insight that we're, we're understanding now of how important it is to really be able to work with people, understand people, relate to people and work with the different cultures and, and how do you operate in those different scenarios? Those are all massive challenges now that, that uh, biologists face. And I think we need a change in our university systems that are pumping out these biologists so that they're better prepared for, for that, because it's, it, it's just, it's important to know about bears, but 
if we're going to make progress on these problems, we also need to know how to work with the public more effectively. I completely agree with that because I had the incorrect assumption that going into my field, I'm just going to be studying and working on big cats and traveling the world. And I don't have to deal with people like I just want to study cats. I could have not been more wrong. <laughs> and so now everything I do is about people. Conservation is about people. It's all people management. Wildlife is badass at doing what they do. It's us that has a problem with them. And it's obviously it's not that simple, but it's kind of that simple. And so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the equation, the equation sort of shifts around depending on how well your carnivore population is doing. Mm. So if you have a if you have, for example, black bears that are doing very well, their population's not threatened at all, you're gonna think about the problem differently than if you're trying to recover a species or or save it from decline or things of that nature, where we still see a a bit of that with brown bears or grizzly bears in you know in, in the US, but across the world. There are a lot of places that where the bear populations are declining in some places fairly dramatically, and there's a lot of concern about that. And so how you approach that problem uh, of humans versus bears or that dynamic, you may put more emphasis on, on understanding bears at that point. Um, so anyway, it, it, it's a, I, I don't want for those people striving to be the next carnivore biologist. Listen, it's a ton of fun studying bears. I love it. It's probably what keeps me going in terms of motivation and desire to do my work. But you also need to recognize, all right, you, you got to be good with people as well. Yes, people skills, soft skills, as they're called, they really should be a higher priority for, for really anyone. Because no matter, I don't know many industries nowadays where the human element is completely removed. So being able to talk to somebody that has a different viewpoint than you, being able to empathize with what somebody's dealing with, like these are really, really important skills that, yeah, you might be the best researcher in the world, but if you don't have that important element, then there's only so far that you can go. And recognizing that is really important. Yeah, and you're, 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 you're starting to brush up against something that I think is becoming more important from, at least from a researcher perspective, probably there's a, probably a lot of biologists that are shaking their heads at me thinking, really, you're just discovering this now, but the, the, the value and the, the use of science and how it's conducted, those two things are, are really important. Meaning I could I could sit back and be a researcher and just write papers and throw those papers out to the world. And the impact is going to be fairly limited if I approach it from the standpoint of I'm a researcher, I'm separate from your system, and here's my work, read it because it's really important. It's just not the way people absorb knowledge and it's not the way to make the science relevant, in my opinion now, uh, I think the notion of co-producing the knowledge. So having 
having the people impacted by these issues, whether it's you know bears in urban areas or bears in livestock or you, you know, you name it, you, these different wildlife interactions, but having the people that are invested in this issue fairly deeply, whether it's the people impacted or whether it's the stakeholders that are really vested in understanding this, having them involved in the, in the science process and in the research, I think is a more effective way of moving forward with, with, with having the science be impactful. Absolutely. I completely agree. I feel like there is this big shift now. And even from my own master's program and everything, there's a shift from just strict knowledge gaining and knowledge producing and applying it. Because that that's more of what I've viewed my role. There's these amazing researchers out in the world that are doing unbelievable work and we need their science. We need the answers that they're coming up with. But if their word doesn't leave that paper that they wrote, then what? Then what? What's the use? Why does it actually matter? Yes, yeah, so people have like spent ten years doing a research project, and they have these great uh, responses in this paper. But if no one can translate that and then apply whatever it is that they learn, the application of science, then okay, then, then that person might as well have not done that ten years worth of work. And that's okay. That's why we need everybody with all of these different skill sets working together to, to do that, to get these messages out, to be able, you know, someone like me that can pull this, these stories out of somebody to maybe make someone care and understand this work a little better versus somebody who's like, I hate people. I just want to be in the wild and I just want to study and look at wildlife. That is awesome. You don't need to talk to people. Just help us get your work out. So yeah. Yeah. And I think, just to add a little bit to that, depending on the type of science you're doing, there's still need to understand this species or that species mm -hmm. to understand some basic biology or some just some fundamental things about different species. And that tends to be less about people than this, this field where we're looking at human and wildlife interactions. And there's a real clear agenda. Generally, you go into science trying to be unbiased and trying to not have too much of an agenda. That's the training you get. And it's important, but with this particular prop, these problems, the clear agenda is how do we minimize conflict and nobody's opposed to minimizing conflict. And so operating your science within that realm, you have an agenda and then the trick becomes, well, how do, how do I get my information, my research out there so that people pay attention to it? And again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier. I think it's the, the, the process in which you do science is really important. Yes, absolutely. And that how much more information is available nowadays, like, you know, having all these different shows, like mine's one of many, many, you know, and everything else that's available nowadays. So let's, Let's take a shift here for a second, and I want to talk about the other big species here in the U.S. and North America, and that's grizzlies. And they offer a whole different suite of issues to talk about, which is which is which is very inner not great. That's not the right term, but it's very interesting to dive into what this particular species and all the different issues that it brings. Even though it's like it's a bear, it's a bear, it's a bear. No, grizzlies offer something a lot really different. So 
First, let, maybe let's do round two of what we did before. Could you maybe give us a little bit of Grizzlies 101, maybe their natural history? And then let's start diving into your work and what are the main drivers of conflict with them. But first, let's teach us and maybe compare them a little bit with uh, the black bears that you just so wonderfully taught us all about. <laughs> sure. And I, I will qualify all this by saying... I've spent a lot less time thinking about grizzly bears and, and learning about grizzly bears. So I'm even less of an expert in this realm, but the issues are really remarkably similar to black bears. And that's because grizzly bear biology is not all that different from black bear biology. Some of the exceptions might be that they're more effective predators or, or can be mm -hmm. of especially larger ungulates. That's not to say black bears aren't necessarily effective predators. Uh, it's just that grizzly bears probably are, are a little more effective. And I think there's also some different needs associated with grizzly bears that maybe are a little different from black bears. Certainly, it's still a population that some people feel like is not recovered and others would disagree, but they're listed right now uh, as federally endangered. And there's a big push to try to, to change that so that they're not listed. But th those dynamics create important components to our, you know, working with grizzly bears and, and um, how we approach the, the equation of you know, especially when we're looking at grizzly bear human interactions, meaning the, the the idea that, all right, to solve these conflicts, we do, we go in and do lethal control of some individual bears. That becomes harder to do because of, of the parameters uh, associated with the bear population. They probably are slower growing population than, than black bears. Um, and there's some limitations to um, how, how big the population can get, all those things factor into the making, making my work in terms of human bear conflict a little, a little different. I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> no, that does. That does. Okay. I mean, in terms of bear, grizzly bear 101, a lot of what I said about black bears is very similar. Generalist species, they'll take advantage of all kinds of different food sources and a, a lot of their biology is, is, is pretty similar to black bears. Well, what's the, what's the average size difference between the two? I think that might be the most notable difference. Yeah, there's, um, so it's a little bit hard to pin that down. You know, you're going to have grizzly bears that are very large along the coast. They're the same species as interior bears, which tend to be a lot smaller. And, um, and then of course there's going to just be size differences between males and females for, for both species. But in general, you know, I, and this is just a guess, but you know, grizzly bears are probably going to be, I don't know, 30, 40% bigger than black bears is just sort of a guess with realizing that there's a lot of variation across the different landscapes. 
Yeah, I, I, I've had the privilege of seeing both bears in the wild. I've not been to like Katmai or anything with the infamous coastal bears, which that's high on the list of things to go do. Just, just, uh, just, it's just cool. Makes sense. A much more dense protein source. You, know, you could just get bigger when you have a lot of protein. <laughs> right. As we've seen in humans, as we've seen in a lot of different species, you know, food availability can really depict the size of these species. And so I think though, what grizzlies represents and is the next side of conflict that I would really like to dive more into and that is working with on these large large ranches and ranchers and what this conflict is exactly and how we mitigate that so I would love to hear from your experience how do you maybe like from your work and your project what is the main driver of that level of conflict with this group of people you know these stakeholders in this conversation and are you still working on what the solutions are or what is the best way to help ranchers pr both protect their livestock and bears to have a good thriving life in the same ecosystem? So yeah, what, what have you learned? Well, we're, again, I'm just, just kind of getting involved, more involved in, in grizzly bear work. An easy answer to your question is I have a, a project where one of my students is is evaluating the the role of carcass management and car by carcass I mean dead livestock so every year on any particular ranch you're going to have cows or sheep or livestock that that die and very typically those carcasses are put into a bone pile or stacked somewhere away from your house or your ranch. And that was, that is a perfectly acceptable thing to do to manage that, unless you're in grizzly bear country, because suddenly those, those kinds of attractants become, you know, very appealing to, to bears. And so they bring in bears and, and then that Im impacts or increases the human bear interactions significantly. So part of what I'm doing, it's, it's a very kind of collecting data from across places in Montana that have focused on trying to clean up carcasses. And, and there's a, one of the, one of my friends, colleagues uh, in Montana, Seth Wilson, he's done, you know, and others in Montana fish, wildlife and park have done a lot of work on this issue. So we're, we're adding a bit of knowledge to like, how does that, how does that impact your levels of conflict, how does that impact grizzly bear movement across the landscape when you clean up those carcasses? We're also taking a look at uh, range riding as a way mm, to, mm -hmm. to influence uh, the dynamic between not only grizzly bears, but also wolves. Is that an effective tool to minimize these negative interactions? And so there's another student that is working working on that that involves not only in Montana and in grizzly bear range, but across Arizona, New Mexico and Idaho, Oregon, a lot of different places through the West where we're trying to get a better handle on understanding the, the, the role of range riding, because those situations where you have these big, large public allotments where there's a long history of, you know, moving livestock into the into these allotments, whether they're Forest Service or BLM, utilizing the forage on these allotments and then pulling your livestock out. That that type of system 
tends to be one of the harder things to address in terms of of conflict because you know some of the culture has been especially with uh, with cattle has been all right let's put our cattle out there and then we check on them periodically but we don't really you know we're not managing the cattle much and so that sets up a, a, a sets up a real kind of perfect storm when you get grizzly bears and wolves these effective large predators on the landscape they figure out those additional sources of food pretty quickly and so it's a very challenging landscape to work in and our traditional tools are pretty limited or even some of our new newer tools are pretty limited in terms of how do we how do we help these ranchers minimize this conflict it's tough it's i, I just will put it out there that it's it's a really hard system to figure out but we're starting to try to dive into that in a more meaningful way and move some tools into the toolbox that aren't just lethal lethal control and some of those are involve compensation they involve livestock husbandry they involve uh, non-lethal tools that are helpful for deterring predators in in but it's a really tricky tricky system to work in and grizzly bears are probably one of the harder species so if you say compare it to wolves wolves are very neophobic meaning afraid of new things so we can you know we can pull out some deterrents like lights and these a device called fladry which is just like a a rope with flags hanging off of it and that can be fairly effective kind of in these smaller arenas but it can be effective in the, in the sense that we can take advantage of the neophobia and wolves. Grizzly bears don't have that. They don't really care, seemingly don't really care about, you know, different light devices and some of this tools that are effective with wolves. So one of the questions that I'm really interested in is what is a grizzly bear afraid of? And if we can maybe understand that a little better, that might help us develop some tools. Yeah, I love, uh, yeah. It's like, what do you do with a species that is so intelligent, so large, and they see an easy food source in front of them? Like, it's like, it's, <laughs> it almost seems like an impossible question, you know? And I've been in multiple places, just in Colorado alone, where you just, you know, you, you're on some forest service land and you almost run into a cow. Like, I've done that on more than one occasion. I'm like, whoa, there is a cow here. And there's no one managing it, but that's the way it was set up, you know, way back in the day. And then these ranchers just continue on that lifestyle. Like there's no reason to change until there's a reason to change. But then how do we help subsidize these potentially really expensive, I, I would imagine some of them might be expensive ways to mitigate conflict as our predators move back in. Like, I'm sure this is a big conversation. We're not, uh, we're not going to start talking about wolves because then we really will be here for the rest of the day. Like the big reintroduction of wolves, the Colorado, that's a big topic right now. Like what are, what's the state going to do? I haven't read the whole proposal yet to know what's, how they're going to mitigate that. But like a species like the grizzlies, you know, what do you do? And range riding, I think this is actually really interesting because I spent quite a lot of time in Africa and that was one of the ways that they were starting to mitigate, you know, all of the massive things with teeth 
in the African bush <laughs> that would love to take a goat real fast, super easy, and having actual herders with the herds and, you know, these big shepherd dogs and, and all of these different mitigation techniques. And it's working there, but how do we translate that to, to the North American landscape and model and these big ranches that are already here and also too like so if, when you actually look at range riding itself that means that somebody is going to have to be on the range with the cattle how do you do that how do you compensate for that how do you keep someone safe i mean <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. questions to this <laughs> there are a lot of questions i don't i think there's mo more hope than what you expressed. I think it's a problem that, oh, well, listen, we're never going to solve it, but we can manage it better. And, and it's going to start with these big wide open ranges. It's going to really start with the livestock producers figuring out ways to operate that are a little maybe different from what they're doing now. And as soon as you do that, some of the tools the non-lethal tools anyway, start becoming a little more effective. And really what I'm talking about, which you alluded to as well, is that if there's ways, especially at night or protecting your livestock, then boy, the job gets a lot easier. And the other really critical component of this is, is prevention. So there is a learning component for predation on cattle that um, is important. You know, that is if we can prevent animals from learning to use cattle as prey, then we have we have advantages there. So that notion of prevention is really important. The notion of management of livestock in ways that is maybe what they're not doing now is important. And then we can start throwing in some new technological advancements that become relevant. And one of the ranchers I work with, he calls it tech herding. And so he's, he's not in grizzly bear country, but he is in the heart of wolf country in Oregon. And he's extremely effective at minimizing predation on his sheep. So he runs thousands of sheep across these landscapes, but he, he's got it so that predation is like number four or five of what he's worried about. And there's other things like, water and forage and disease that become more important for him to to worry about but it took him a while to learn to relearn that and it's learning from people like that that's really important it's co-producing knowledge with people like that it's understanding that yes there is if we want these grizzly bears on these landscapes sharing these working landscapes we need the urban public to support you know, maybe some programs that do help ranchers. And so figuring out how to merge all that together becomes really important in this, this problem. But I don't think it's unsolvable. I think there's room to, to really improve things a lot. And I think we can do it. Yeah, there's so many examples of people coexisting. Tech herding. What does that guy do? I ha I'm like, what, yeah. what, what does that mean? I, I need herding, to look. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, He's a rancher out of Oregon. He, he mostly works with sheep, but um, I, I mean, it's it's nothing surprising, if you will, if you kind of know anything about herding. But he basically, the big thing he does is he night pins his sheep 
every night while he's out on these remote allotments. And so as part of that, the tech component, so that's the herding component. He has South American herders that come up and work and help him, you know, work with the sheep on a daily basis. And it's, it's a real controlled environment and it, it requires uh, his sheep knowing how to, you know, getting used to these night pinning situations that requires his herders and it, it requires a big coordination, but once they figure it out, it's, he swears by it and he thinks his sheep are less stressed. His herders are less stressed. He thinks he's got increased weight gain. Certainly the biologists, wolf biologists are happier because they're not getting calls all the time. So there's the dynamics have changed a lot within his operation, but the tech component of that is he's all about creating and using new devices, whether it's something like Fox lights or electric fencing to, you know, keep his sheep corralled or he's developing new tools. Uh, he has what we're calling an automated mineral bin that uh, he thinks will be effective with cattle where he can open and close this mineral bin that is a, you know, that livestock really, you know, it's an important part of raising livestock is making mineral supplements available to him. He's trying to use that as a way to move his livestock out of high risk areas into low predation risk areas at night. And so uh, there, it goes on and on. He's full of ideas that are, some are sort of, ancient cultural type efforts to the new technology. So that's where tech herding has been coined. And that's not my, my, I didn't term coin the term he did. So it's, it's cool. He, he's a fifth generation rancher. I respect him highly. Yeah, that is, that is so cool. And just goes to show the need for collaborations. We can know like the ins and outs specifically of bear or sheep or wolf behavior, but you can't replace five generations worth of knowledge on how to live on the landscape with these predators as a rancher. So, oh, that is so cool. It makes me incredibly excited for the future. And I have to ask this question. And if you don't know the answer, it is 100% okay. Now that wolves are being reintroduced to Colorado, do you think grizzlies will be intentionally brought back to the Rockies? I, I well, I don't think any state agency is going to purposely try to try to do that. So I'd be very surprised to see that happen. I, there's a little bit of talk about it from some perspectives that uh, are, are definitely on, on the environmental side. So I've seen some documents evaluating the potential for to hold grizzly bears in Arizona and New Mexico. And, oh, wow. um, but uh, I, yeah, there would be zero interest, I think, from any state agencies. <laughs> uh, they're like, we've done enough with wolves. We'll see if just bears naturally get here. Like, well, technically like the wolves did too, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the grizzly bears, they offer a, a they're in some ways a little harder than wolves just because of their potential threat to people. So um, I think there's a lot of, a fair bit of concern on that. Yeah, that makes total sense. But I was, I was just curious. I was like, <laughs> now Colorado's... you're putting me on the spot, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was like, if you don't, you don't have to technically answer this question. 
I don't think I, I did, it. right? <laughs> no, you did it. You were very good at evading it, which is fantastic. Now that, that that's good. So we'll see what happens in the future as grizzlies populations just naturally get bigger and, and how, how this is going to play out in the future. But it is really exciting to hear that there's all of these different experiments essentially going on as grizzly populations grow. How do we keep everybody safe and happy, both grizzlies and people and also the livestock that we need to fuel our, um, yeah, just our people and everything. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll just, I'll add one thing to that and, and say that the issues with grizzly bears is not just about livestock. They're the same issues we're having with, with black bears apply, you know, from, from garbage, you know, for example, example, Jackson, Wyoming was, there's a big uproar about killing grizzly bears because there's a bunch of garbage available in Jackson, you know, the small beekeepers, the hobby farmers, all those things become really important with grizzly bear recovery. And more and more of the emphasis is on how do we, how do we manage all this kind of stuff? And so, yeah, the bears will eat anything. So that includes, you know, your chicken chickens in your backyard to the really remote livestock in across these allotments and everything in between. So there's, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into trying to minimize that. And, and kudos to a program that the Defenders of Wildlife runs that really emphasizes getting these small fencing, electric fencing devices around these small kinds of resources. But you protect that, then you not only protect the resource, but you help, you help bears as well. Yeah, I'm, I love that you brought that up because I have quite a few, actually quite a number of friends that are wildlife photographers and they have quite big social media presences. And one of their favorite things to do is go photograph bears. And there's been in recent years, some bears that have gotten into serious trouble because of Jackson's uh, garbage issues and some famous bears that were actually euthanized because they became problem bears and just while I see it as twofold, like I see the media coverage that was on these things, what it helped bring awareness to the issue and that one of the ways to help protect bears is to manage our trash because it's, you know, you don't you don't naturally just put two and two together unless we have a conversation like some with someone like you. And so, yeah, it just really goes to show that. Yeah, I don't quite know where I was going with that. But you just bringing up Jackson and I saw so many people in the uproar and a lot of people were actually like rallying together to keep this one particular bear, this female bear away from town and and actually like hazing her on purpose to keep her away because she was actually like in the crosshairs essentially to be taken out. So, of course, that that might have been a dramatic version of what happened. I don't know. I wasn't there. I was in Colorado. I was just seeing this all unfold on social media. So what side, how, how far of it was on one side versus the other, I guess really doesn't matter now because a lot of awareness was brought to the issue, you know, was brought to the issue. So hopefully some things will change. Um, I don't know what the latest is on that because the bears are asleep. So I don't know what's going to happen next spring, but yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was a very real example that people listening right now, you can go look it up. You can go 
to people's platforms. You can go to a lot of uh, like local online articles that were written about this around Jackson and the bear attractant issue. So yeah, that's a very real one. That's very relevant to right now. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I don't know, I haven't, uh, I consulted a little bit, but just very much in the background, but I haven't followed. I know there was a big push to try to, to really implement some big changes in Jackson to reduce the garbage availability. So everything we've done in Colorado or, or a lot of different places across the U.S. where people have done great work trying to minimize conflict, it all applies to, you know, you think, oh, well, this wouldn't apply to grizzly bears. Well, it does. And that's because Montana, you, you know, the population's booming. Everybody wants to move and live yeah. in Montana. Well, if you're going to do that, you better think about your garbage. And it, it, it's just, it, it's the same problem, just different kind of context. So. Absolutely. I personally know two people, one person that just moved there from LA and another person that is moving there from Ohio. And yeah, so I, I personally know people that are going there right now, but okay. So it seems like this is a stay tuned dot, 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 that we have a lot more that's going to be unfolding uh, with all of this, which is really exciting. And I, I, that's one part of the show that I love is that I'm continually releasing episodes because we can always sit back down in the future and talk about some other work that you have going on that we're not going to bring up today. And then also maybe some follow up on this stuff as it develops. And yeah, so one of the things that I love to, as we wind down the interview to ask my guests that come on and you have been in the field now for a while and we have brought up some great advice to people that are coming up or listening, but is there a particular message or another piece of advice that you have maybe adopted over the years that you would like to share with those listening? Sure. I think, I think it's important to celebrate the successes that we've had. Oftentimes we, we get focused on the wrong thing and mm. don't, don't see the bigger picture. And yes, there's probably, you know, people would argue there's a lot of more we could do to recover these large carnivores. I don't want to get into that, but I think if you look at the history of what we've done in the past 20, 30, 40 years, it's remarkable. And, and so celebrate that. Go find those places where you can see some bears and see some, some wolves and enjoy that. And, but realize also that those successes come with challenges and how are you going to participate in that? Because it's not just a few, you know, we've covered a big spectrum of, of these issues and it's not just the ranchers, it's the urban environments. And, you know, how as a society are we going to embrace that notion of coexisting with these large carnivores? So it's important work and everybody can play a role in it. Absolutely. Oh, Stuart, this has been so much fun. Again, I feel like this is part one of part minis. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil anything else for all this great work you're doing. So if somebody might want to read more about what you've done previously, what you're currently working on, what are some ways that people can engage with you and your work and maybe find you online if they'd like to learn more? Sure, they can access a lot of my work through the USDA 
website at the National Wildlife Research Center. I also do a lot of work with uh, a center out of Colorado State University called the Center for Human Carnivore Coexistence. My students operate under that umbrella. And those would probably be the two primary places to, to go for information. Awesome. I'm not a big social media person, which <laughs> is probably a mistake, but sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's not a mistake. It's not at all. It's your work is still getting out there in other ways. So it is totally fine. But and of course, all of those links will be available in the show notes of this episode. So if somebody is like, where do I go? Just go to rewildology.com and I'll make sure that they get linked to you and all of the cool bear work you're doing. But Stuart, thank you so much for sitting down with me and sharing your work. And like I said, I feel like multiple episodes are to come <laughs> from this one talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brooke, thank you for having me on. I, this has been a lot of fun. Wow. Stuart gave us so much information on bear. I have to ask, what's your favorite bear sighting? Let me know by posting your top bear moment on social media and tagging Rewildology or emailing me the story at hello at I'll be so happy to share it everywhere. While you're at it, let me know if you'd like to attend the listener meetup on May 16th at 6 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about today's episode, please submit your question in the Rewildologist Facebook group on this episode's post. As always, I want to thank you for being a part of the Rewildology community. If you'd like to support the show, some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners and creating even more impact, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support this show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to thank Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, Head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.